Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you all. Happy Father's Day to all of you who are dads, and I know that can take on many different forms, so whatever capacity you are a father, we just want to bless you today, and uh, we wanted to do that by giving you the whole donut. Not a donut whole, but the whole donut. And don't let anybody tell you that you don't deserve it. You deserve a pink sprinkle, okay? So make sure you grab that donut this morning before you head out of here, and maybe two. So uh, happy Father's Day, guys. Um, I just want to pray a blessing over you. And so if you are near uh, a father, whether it's your father or, I don't know, father in the faith, uh, lay a hand on them and let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these men in our church, Lord, that are great pictures of you, our heavenly father. And God, I pray that you would supply them with everything that they need to be um, a, a picture of love to their children, uh, to point them to you, God. And uh, Lord, just I pray a blessing upon them today. Let them be satisfied in you and satisfied by all the people gathering around them to celebrate them today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We're going to continue on in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark, and it hit me this week that we are already in chapter 13. Now, this might not seem like a, a big thing, but for the nine months that we've been as a church, we've covered 12 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, and I mean, as I look back, I think about all the wonderful things we've already learned about the person of Jesus. We've seen his amazing miracles so far in this gospel. We've seen uh, his teachings and just, um, we've really encountered the real Jesus through the word of God. And today, I'm, I'm more enamored by God today than, than I was at the start of this church plan. In, in multiple reasons for why. Just watching what God has been doing in this church what he has been doing in individual lives, and then what he's been doing corporately as we've just been faithfully gathering together each week. And so um, it's so fun to be part of this. And if you're new with us, if you're new, um, we're, we're a church plant. Like I said, we're only nine months old. And so we're all new, right? We're all new. And that's an encouragement. So let's keep pressing forward in all that God wants for us. And so as we come into chapter 13, this takes place in the final week of Jesus's life upon the earth. We're going to hear Jesus talk today about something that I know all of you have great concern and curiosity for. Jesus today is going to talk about the future. And in Mark chapter 13, which we'll cover both this week and next week, Jesus is going to give a teaching that is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because of where Jesus gave this teaching, that it was on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the city of Jerusalem in Israel. And it was called a discourse because it's one of those sit down and listen kind of teachings where Jesus had his disciples there with him in a private conversation and teaching to give them truth concerning the future. And we know that this teaching wasn't just for the disciples then, but it is for us as disciples now, that this is God's living word and it's true and it contains things that are still to come in the future. And so, many times we know Jesus, 
would teach his disciples just by kind of passing by. Maybe he'd tell a parable along the side of a road. But this is one of those teachings, as I said, where it was kind of a sit down and pay attention to what I'm about to tell you kind of teachings. In fact, this is the longest recorded teaching in the Gospel of Mark on a single subject, which should tell you something about its significance, right? And so, here we are this morning. We're sitting in this church. Hopefully, you're sitting ready, intently ready to receive God's word concerning the future of mankind and our existence right now in this created world and what is to come into the future. So this morning, we're looking at the Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. We'll cover the second half of this teaching next week, so you're going to want to come back, okay? You guys ready to read the teaching of Jesus? Let's look in our Bibles. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first, first be proclaimed to all nations. And when, you bring, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Happy Father's Day. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. How's that for a Father's Day message? <laughs> well, I trust that these words of Jesus are going to come as a great encouragement. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you're one of his disciples, this portion of scripture is phenomenal. And if you don't know Jesus yet, I pray that by the end of today you do. And so let's pray and ask God to bless his word to us. Lord God, we're sitting here intently ready to hear from you. Holy Spirit, I ask, Lord, that you would speak through me, even as your word has promised here. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would have willing and ready hearts to receive all that you would have for us to know. 
And God, that we would be prepared for what is to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Jesus was in Jerusalem at this time because it was Passover. Passover was a yearly celebration that the Jews commemorated for their deliverance out of Egypt and that bitter slavery that they experienced. And Jesus entered Jerusalem the Sunday prior, riding on a donkey as the people shouted, Hosanna, and they praised him as their king. And then Jesus went into the temple, and we know what he did, how he, how he cleansed it. And during all of this time, the religious leaders were just getting bent out of shape. They had envy in their hearts toward Jesus, and they wanted to destroy him. And, and so in one encounter after another, they tried to trap Jesus. But Jesus was able to show his wisdom and his purity in the ways that he answered and in the ways that he taught people. We've seen how Jesus demonstrated his authority and his wit, that he just masterfully made his way through these, um, these people coming against him. But now Jesus is leaving the temple this is right after he was sitting there in the corner of the temple watching as that poor widow put her two mites into the offering box and how he taught his disciples of how we ought to give sacrificially unto the Lord. But now he is talking with his disciples in route as they're going up to the Mount of Olives. And that starts in verse 1 where it says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So Jesus is walking out of the temple with his disciples, and one of them is just simply amazed by what he sees. He looks at this massive temple construct that was uh, built under the guidance of Ezra and then renovated and added to by Herod. And it was truly a sight to see. I mean, this is one of the greatest sites, one of the greatest places that anyone could visit in the ancient world. And the disciples are coming out of this temple, walking by and just saying, Jesus, look. Look at these wonderful stones and how massive they are. Where did they even find stones so big? And, and then, Jesus, how were they able to kind of position them into such a way that they're just so beautifully fit together? People would say you couldn't even fit a piece of paper between these massive rocks that were constructed together. And, and he's saying, look at how wonderful these buildings are. And he's probably seeing the white marble and the gold that just surrounded this temple. There were these doors that had beautiful engravings that represented God's covenant to Israel. So it was really a sight to see, and the disciple is just in awe of what he's looking at. And then Jesus says in verse two, he said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And here is one of those moments, right, when you're reading the Gospels and, and, and these words of Jesus that just kind of come directly at you and they pack some intensity. I mean, you kind of have to imagine that this disciple is sort of startled by these words of Jesus. Here he is commenting on the beautiful architecture of the most important building in Israel, and Jesus simply and directly says, yeah, it's all going to be destroyed. And, and so before what we get into, which is what Jesus meant by saying not one stone would be left upon another, let's just take in this fact 
that Jesus is not bound to speak only about the things that we want to talk about and the things that we want to hear. Because Jesus has much more to say about life and about death and about his eternal plan of redemption than usually what we are able or willing to receive. Jesus puts his finger on things that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, like talking about the future and the end of the world. But I'm sure that this disciple, as he just wanted to talk about architecture, Jesus wanted to give him a lesson on eschatology. See, Jesus always wants to take us from the natural and into the supernatural. Jesus will always lead you beyond the physical and into the spiritual. He, he likes to take us when we're overly consumed with the temporal and get our attention on things that are, that are eternal. But Jesus, in his response to this disciple, was not making any kind of spiritualized analogy. He wasn't giving any kind of metaphor here. What Jesus was referring to was something that would literally happen, that it was soon to take place. And Jesus said to his disciples, as they're looking at the great buildings of the temple, that it's going to be utterly destroyed. He said, there would not be left one stone upon another that would not be thrown down. And Jesus, as I said, was literally referring to something that would soon take place and these words of Jesus were actually fulfilled some 40 years after Jesus spoke them in the year 70 AD. You see, what happened was that Israel, as we've seen throughout the gospel, they remained under Roman occupation. The Romans ruled over them in Israel, and the Jews began to grow more and more in frustration, and so they stirred up a revolution against the Romans. And they, they formed a Jewish militia to fight against them. And they had a few small victories early on, but ultimately what happened is the Romans just came through like they kind of always did, and they just decimated them. And in the final days of what is known as the Jewish War, there was this last standing group of Jewish fighters that found refuge in the temple. They sort of barricaded themselves in and found it as like a final fortress for them to stand against the Romans. So what the Romans did is they surrounded the temple. There was no way in, there was no way out, and they were just waiting to snuff out these last final fighters. And night after night, as they waited for them to come out, as they were letting them just kind of starve within there, the Romans were just having a great time eating and drinking and doing what soldiers do when they have nothing to do. And one of these soldiers who became... Uh, so drunk, he was actually sitting upon the shoulders of another soldier, and he threw a firebrand into the temple, and it set the temple on fire. And the temple was destroyed with fire. It burned so hot that the gold that was in the temple melted and seeped down into the rocks. Now, what that man did as he burned the temple was contrary to what the general at the time Titus Vespasius wanted to have happen. He wanted the resources that came from the temple. He wanted the marble and he wanted the gold so that he could have it as sort of some victory reward. And here they see is the gold has now melted and seeped down into the temple 
So what Titus does is he sent his troops in, and they spent, I don't know how long, but they removed one stone upon another until there was not one single stone stacked so that they could retrieve the gold out. They leveled it so completely that even historians don't know where the actual foundation of the temple actually was because they so completely dismantled this temple that took 100 years to renovate and, and, and perfect so that the words of Jesus were confirmed that not one stone would be left upon another. Now, I believe that this first part of the Olivet Discourse, which we would interpret to be a literal thing that happened in history, that this is actually going to give us a key then to how we are ought to interpret the rest of the Olivet Discourse. If we interpret the first part of the Olivet Discourse literally, then that means that we, we interpret the rest of it literally. Does that make sense? And so as we move on, we see then in uh, verse 3 through 4, as Jesus is not speaking allegorically or metaphorically, he's not using parable, he's talking about a real event that took place in 70 AD, he's now going to talk about some more things in verse 3 through 4. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so Jesus leaves the temple, right? And this is the last time that Jesus would be in the temple. And I mean literally. God did at one time choose to dwell in the temple buildings, that his glory and his presence was there for the people to come and to sacrifice and to worship. There was a place called the Holy of Holies, but Jesus departed from that temple, and we know where he was going. He was going to the cross at Calvary, and after he died upon that cross, Jesus would be laid in the tomb. And Jesus referred to his own body as something of a temple. He was talking to the religious leaders, and he said that this temple will be destroyed, but I will raise it up. And they're like, you can destroy this temple that took Herod 100 years to renovate and raise it up in three days? Are you kidding me, Jesus? But what Jesus was talking about was his own life that would go to the cross as a sacrifice and would be laid in the tomb so that three days later he would rise from the dead. And you know what? The Bible says that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead also lives in you if you are a follower of Jesus. See, God no longer dwells in buildings. This is a decent building. It's pretty cool. But this isn't where he dwells. He dwells in you. We are the temples of the living God. And that's foundational to our understanding of where Jesus is going as he's getting the focus and the attention from his disciples off the physical temple and into what God's going to do in his kingdom. And so Jesus has left the temple. He passed through the brook Kidron and up onto the Mount of Olives, which is a taller mountain that overlooks that smaller mountain that today is called the Temple Mount. And Jesus has with him a smaller number of his disciples. He had Peter, James, and John, which usually formed that inner circle of, of three disciples, sort of a special training cohort of disciples. 
Andrew is mentioned in the group here, which maybe it's because he was that one disciple that was commenting on the beauty of the temple. But the text doesn't say that. That's just an assumption of mine. But what the text does say is that there were these four disciples with Jesus, and he privately gave them details about what is to come. And this was prompted by two questions that the disciples asked of Jesus. Did you see them there? He said, they asked him, when will these things be? That's question number one. And they asked, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? That's question number two, okay? Those are the two questions that we're now going to seek to find answers to. Now, Mark doesn't necessarily record a straight answer for question number one. Jesus didn't tell his disciples when the temple would be destroyed. He didn't say, yeah, that'll happen in 70 AD. In fact, anytime Jesus gave a prophetic teaching to his disciples, he never gave dates or times. And at one point, he even said that it wasn't even for him to know dates and times, but that this was in the Father's knowledge. And what Jesus did tell his disciples is that these things that were going to literally happen, that they would happen soon. And when Jesus said soon, you can try to surmise what Jesus means by soon. Is he talking about a day? or a week, or a month, a year, a decade, a century, maybe a millennia? What is soon to God? Well, for God, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a, is as a thousand years. Time, in comparison to eternity, which is how God measures things according to time, time in comparison to eternity is soon, no matter how you look at it, right? So, when will these things be? What is the answer to that question? The answer is soon. When will God complete his eternal plan of redemption? When will God send Jesus to the earth to make every wrong thing right? When will God set up his eternal kingdom upon the earth? soon. You know what that answer does for me? It makes me always ready. I know that every minute, day, I'm getting that much closer to seeing Jesus. Soon becomes sooner every second. We're sooner now. We're sooner now. Every single second, we are sooner to seeing Jesus. Now, the next verses speak more directly to that second question, which was, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus, again, gives us a straight and literal answer, starting in verse 5. Look with me. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. 
There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So what Jesus does is he instructs his disciples about what it'll be like living in the last days. And when I say the last days, what I'm referring to is the time from when Jesus ascended back into heaven to the time in which Jesus will return to the earth at his second coming. That period of time, biblically known as the last days. And so the disciples were living in the last days. And approximately 2,000 years later, we are still living in the last days because Jesus hasn't come back yet. And if you think he has, you're mistaken. You'll know it. So you remember, right, when Jesus ascended to heaven. And the disciples were gazing into the sky as they're watching Jesus being lifted up to go back to the right hand of the Father. And it's kind of like when you let go of a healing balloon and you're just trying to see it all the way up. And they're all looking into the sky. And then this angel comes and speaks to the disciples. Acts chapter 1, 11, the angel says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Well, they're trying to see Jesus. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So listen, if you are not aware of the literal and physical and soon return of Jesus, you need to get your face in the Bible. The Bible talks almost twice as much about the second coming of Jesus as he does his first coming. And so if you believe in the first coming of Jesus, which is that God became a man in the person of Jesus, and he lived a perfect and sinless life so that he could die on a cross to redeem you, and if you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven, if you believe all of that as you ought to believe with faith, then you should be doubly aware of the second coming of Jesus. Because if you are aware of his first coming, and the Bible speaks twice as much about the second coming, we should know that it can happen at any moment, like the twinkling of an eye. Like a thief in the night, Jesus will come, and he's coming soon. The question is, are you aware of his coming, and are you ready for his coming? How do you become ready for the second coming of Jesus, you might ask? If you receive his first coming, you will be ready for his second coming. You need to have one of those sit down and listen kind of teachings with Jesus, where you totally understand who Jesus is, that he's fully God, fully man, savior of mankind, and you recognize fully who you are, a sinner in need of salvation. And then when you accept Christ, as I said, the Holy Spirit then dwells in you and you become a temple of the living God and he keeps you so that you can endure until the coming of Christ. And so how are you ready for the second coming? You receive his first coming. Because Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray. And look, I, I have spent a lot of time 
since, since I was 17 years old, when I came to Christ, I read through the Bible for the first time when I was 19 years old. I wish I had done it sooner. And since then, I've spent hours in my Bible with the Holy Spirit, learning from Jesus about things like the second coming of Christ, things like the prophetic predictions that are in the Bible concerning the end times. And as I read my Bible, I know that we are living in the last days. Now, before you write me off and be like, whoa, crazy guy up there, Peter, James, John, and Andrew are living in the last days. I may see the return of Christ, and so might you. And so I'm always ready, believing that we are living in the last days. And so I seek to be led by Jesus. And when I say that, I seek to be led by Jesus, I'm seeking to be led by the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Because I am aware that I am capable of being led astray. And I am aware that I am capable of leading others astray. I don't think I'm leading you astray right here, teaching from the Bible. See, we have to understand, as what Jesus said, see to it. See that you are not led astray. The opposite of that, of seeing to it, is that you are blind to. That you don't want to see Jesus. You don't want to know about his first coming or his second coming. You... you you are nearsighted. You are bound by the physical. You are bound by the temporal. You have no understanding of things that are eternal and things that are to come, but Jesus said we need to be aware and alert and see to it that we are not led astray because many will come in Jesus' name saying, I am he, and they will seek to lead many people astray. And there have been and there will be, until Christ's return, many people have claimed to be Christ. Many people who have at least um, portrayed themselves to be some kind of savior and preached a different gospel. You can do a quick search on the internet and find plenty of them. Um, don't believe them. There's a lot of real idiots out there. Um, but we need to be understand that we can't be deceived. And how do we see to it that we are not deceived? Well, we use God's word by his spirit pointing us to the real Jesus. And let me tell you, because it pains me to know that there are teachers right here in the midst of this city who either claim to be a savior of some kind or they preach a different Jesus and they proclaim a false gospel. And let me tell you one way that you can know if someone is leading you astray. If somebody is preaching to you a false Christ or claiming a false gospel is that if anyone says that there are other ways to God other than by the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of a virgin in Bethlehem and historically testified about the pages in this book. If anyone says you can be saved some other way, either by works or by consciousness or by some other god of another religion, they are deceivers and they are being deceived. And they have been led astray and they are leading others astray. And, and if you're here this morning, which I'm so glad you are, by the way, and you claim to know the real Jesus, which I hope you do, 
But if you're here and you believe and you teach that other people can come to eternal life in some other way other than the one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, then you have not seen to it that the real Jesus is your God. And you need to repent and ask for the mercy of God. We need to be alert, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we do not be led astray, but we hold fast to the truth of God's word, what it reveals about Jesus as the one and only savior of mankind. Amen? Amen. I remember some years ago, I was in Santa Barbara, and I was walking down State Street, and there was a young man, and he was carrying this sign. You already know it's going south. Um, and he had this date on his sign, May 21st, 2011, that it was the day that Jesus was going to return to the earth. And he was confident that Jesus was coming back and that he was one of the 3% of the people on the earth who were going to go to be with God and be saved. And, and, and I just stood with this man for a while and I told him as best as I could about the real Jesus. And I remember it was almost like this word that God just gave me. I said to him, because he said Jesus is coming back on May 21st. I, I looked that man straight in the eyes and I said, when you wake up on May 22nd, know that the real Jesus has new mercies for you that day. And whatever false Jesus you're following right now, on May 22nd, the real Jesus wants to draw you to himself. And I pray you come to know him and you can find him in this Bible. And I left him there and I, I don't know what ended up happening to that guy. But ever since the time of Christ, people have pointed to wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nation, kingdoms against kingdoms, earthquakes and famines, and they said, the end of the world is here. But notice what Jesus said about these things, about wars and earthquakes and famines, and those experiences that we live in a fallen world with, like global pandemics. What did Jesus say about those things happening? Look at verse seven and eight again. It says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. So when we see things like wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters, it's not technically a sign that the end of the world is occurring. Although those things will increase in the last days, we have to keep in mind that every generation of the church has experienced living in the last days with things like wars and rumors of wars and, and disasters and sinners killing sinners in, in all kinds of crazy ways. And people have thought that the end is here. And Jesus said to think of this more like birth pains. And this is my best shot at a Father's Day application. You guys ready? This applies more to mothers, because fathers, we have the blessed privilege of not experiencing birth pains. But um, my wife, Leah, when she was pregnant with our daughter, Kennedy, we were patiently waiting for her to come. Firstborn child, we were so ready, 
She came two weeks late. And every single morning that we woke up, we thought that was the day. Then we went to bed. And then that was the day. And every day we waited patiently for her to come. And then one day Leah was feeling some birth pains. And she thought that perhaps her water broke. First time parents, you know. And, and, and it, it didn't break. Um, but I thought it did. When she said, my water broke, I'm like, I'll go get the car. And I ran out to the street to grab my car. And my car had been stolen. I was like, where is my car? Looking both ways. My mother-in-law was in town, and she's like doing errands with our second car. And we literally don't have a car, and I'm freaking out. What are we going to do? Anyways, we get our second car back. We race to the hospital, and uh, they sent us home. <laughs> and we waited a couple more days. But... Then the day came, right? We, we, we were so ready and alarmed because of these birth pains. But then our daughter obviously did come a few days later, and our car did get returned to us. In fact, the day Kennedy was born, I got my car back. Crazy story. And Leah was there in the hospital, and I mean, it was crazy. I even passed out in the hospital because I like was so alarmed by like the smallest birth pain sign or whatever. And I was just like, my car is gone. I'm fainting. I was, a, I was just a mess. <laughs> and look, that is how we can be sometimes as Christians when we see birth pains in the world. We see wars and rumors of wars, an earthquake or a tsunami or a global pandemic, and the end is here. But Jesus, what did he say? The end is not yet. What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? We're going a little bit longer today, but it's, it's the Olivet Discourse. We're going to go a little bit longer. Look at everyone good? Verses 9 through 13, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus said, be on your guard. That's similar to the words, see to it. Jesus is saying, pay attention, my disciples. Don't get sleepy. Don't get lackadaisical about the return of Jesus. And know that as you wait, persecution may come upon you. And if we're completely honest, we read this section of Jesus and we see how this persecution, even unto death, will happen, being delivered over councils and all that kind of stuff. And we have to say, if we're honest with ourselves, we haven't experienced this kind of persecution in the land and in the nation in which we live. But it is certainly accurate for many believers today, right now, 
Don't rule out the possibility that perhaps one day you will experience persecution of some kind, that you might stand before religious or civil leaders and, and testify to them as a witness for Christ in the face of opposition. Don't rule that out in your mind as a possibility. But while we enjoy the beautiful freedoms and liberties that we have in this place, that we can gather openly and freely without fear of that door opening and somebody coming in and arresting us. But we know that right now, this Lord's Day, this Sunday, there are people who are gathering in secret. And there are people that rip pages out of their Bibles so that they can memorize it because they know that there could come a time when they won't have a Bible and they need God's word hidden in their hearts so that the Holy Spirit can bring it out of them to testify as a witness of Christ to authorities. And so it should cause us, not as a guilt trip and some getting all tripped out on, oh, you know, this and that, enjoy the blessed liberties and freedoms and use it to our advantage. If there are people in other nations who are experiencing this kind of thing, that we in America on Father's Day, that we can hardly fathom this happening, that a child would put their father to death because of the gospel, but it happens all the time in other places in this world. So as Christians in the West, Enjoy the blessed religious freedom, but it doesn't take away your responsibility, our responsibility. We can't be blind. We have to be on our guard. We need to send, we need to go, and we need to pray. And listen, Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes, if this is your church, and you are here, and you are part of this body, our vision is to make Jesus known. Our practice to do that is evangelism and missions. And if you're here today, and you're thinking about what Jesus said, that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations, and we have this calling to fulfill what Jesus told us to do, that this goes in line with the Great Commission, and we will have a part to play as a local church. We will send and we will we will be sent, and, and, and we have a role in reaching the nations with the gospel. And so, we are only nine months old as a church. But if you call this place your church, Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes, the gospel isn't going to stay here. The gospel is to go out, to make Jesus known, to go to all the nations. And some have and will endure being delivered over to councils. Some have and will endure being beaten in synagogues. Some have and will endure standing before governors and kings for his sake to bear witness before them. And as I said, there are people who don't have access to the Bible in the way that we do. And so to whom much is given, much is required. And so as we end on verse 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but to the one who endures to the end will be saved. If you know Jesus, if you call him your Lord, Jesus 
has called you to endure. And he has given you the spirit so that you can endure. And how do we endure well? We endure well by not allowing anyone to lead us astray. We endure well by being on our guard. And we do well by being ready for his second coming, knowing that at any moment, the Lord can appear and we will appear with him in glory. And as we end, if you're here this morning and you've heard this truth from God's word as we've spoken about the future and about the end and what is soon to come and this is all new to you and and you've heard about Jesus and you've heard about this first coming and the second coming, I want to give you an opportunity today to receive him as your Lord. And so I'm going to pray right now. Our worship team is going to come on up and then we're going to enter into some final songs. And um, this is a time for us, the church, the disciples of Christ, to be alert and ready that every single word that we sing in the song, every line, every stanza, it's sooner and sooner and sooner to us seeing Jesus. Amen? Amen. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you from the depths of our being, Lord, for you giving us revelation of your plans that you did not leave us in the dark. Lord, but you gave us the light of the gospel. Things concerning the past and the present and the future. And thank you that anyone who believes in Christ, our past, present, and future is sealed and covered over by the blood of the Lamb. And we will appear with you in glory at the resurrection. And Lord, we love you, God. We thank you for this morning. And God, I pray right now, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you move and cause blind eyes to see, cause sleepy hearts to awaken to the truth that you are the one and only Savior of mankind. If there is anyone here this morning, right now, and they recognize, I haven't known this real Jesus, God, I pray that right now you would draw them out by your spirit, that you would fill them as your living temple, and God, that you would save them, Jesus. God, do that work, Lord. It is why you are waiting to come back, because there are people in this room right now that you want to draw in and save. So draw them now, Lord. Draw them now. Draw their hearts to you and save them right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.